Aloha, Kavika Miles here. First off, before we get started, I want to give a big old mahalo nui loa for taking time out of your life to listen to book one of my dystopian saga. Secondly, this free audiobook podcast is only made possible by those of you who buy some of my damn merch. It's easy. Just go over to damnitiloveamerica.com and pick yourself up an American tea, a dystopian tea, or hell, even get a copy of the book and read along with me. Regardless, I really do hope you enjoy Saga of the Nine Origins. Mahalo. Saga of the Nine Origins by Kavika Miles Read by the author Twenty. Raider Encampment With only faint mechanical clicks and electronic whirs trickling in the background, Jax's eyes slowly flutter open. Scattered medical supplies and bloody engine parts create a hybrid horror show, and as he makes strenuous efforts to simply rotate his aching neck from left to right, Jax searches for the origin to the elusive sounds. Against his right leg, Jax sees the mechanism as it hums and processes data, and unsure of what to make of the slab of metal gears, tentatively reaches out with his right hand. To his surprise, the metal object twitches, not as if it was bumped or nudged, but as if on its own accord. The moment he thought to touch it, the machine contracted much like an arm would have. Again, Jax attempts to investigate with the same lively results. What the hell? Upon closer examination, a theory begins to formulate in his mind, the frightening details becoming apparent. The metal-beamed machine has a hand, a hand with four detailed fingers and an opposable thumb, and every intricate hinge, tiny rod, and minute piston are both fascinating and horrifying. Slowly, Jax thinks, but as the thought crosses the synapses of his brain, the metal prosthetic is brought to life. Reaching forward and grasping the thin air, bit by bit, Jax's eyes follow the metal fingertips to the artificial wrist, and then from the wrist to the pistons in the elbow. The elbow connects with what should be a fleshy bicep, until finally the mechanical muscles connects to the tissue of Jax's shoulder. Part of Jax hopes this is just a dream, that it's a way his brain is processing trauma. But as the memory begins to flutter back, he realizes that this is in fact reality. First there was pain, agony as he bends his arm, recalling the sentiment. Then noise, helicopters, aircraft, explosions, and gunfire. Finally, his memory reminds him of the apology. But for what? Wanna switch? A raspy, hoarse chuckle asks from the corner of the tent. Bruised, beaten, and bleeding, Redstone lies face up on a bed, hanging onto life by a wire running from his heart into a generator not two feet away. Searching his memory for anything that can clue him into where, what, why, and how the surreal scene was painted, no memory yields itself to Jax. What happened? You got the lucky end of the bargain. <coughs> That's what happened, Rhett scoffs coughing multiple times, each one creating a digital statistic on the monitor next to him. 
Look at that thing. You're a literal cyborg now. Why? Jax asks, not sure how to fully pose the question as he looks to his mechanical arm. Because Dan told him to, Rhett replies, chalking up the question as daft to say the least. Just be grateful. A lot of resources were expended on your behalf. Kill the bastards! A mass chant erupts from outside the shabby tent. Kill! Kill! Kill the white bastards! Soothing, isn't it? Rhett closes his eyes as if actually finding solace in the death hymn. How long do you think you've been out? Rhett, what's going on? Three days, Rhett mumbles. You've been out for three days. Three days? Yep. <clears throat> you want a recap? Because I really don't want to give you one. Kill! Kill! Kill the white bastards! Three days since what? Jax asks himself, his eyes widening as the floodgates to his memory suddenly open. Mary. Looks like it's coming back, Gret says, his eyes still peacefully closed. Where's Mary? Jax asks, the details becoming more vivid by the second. Kill! 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 I already said I don't want to fill you in, Rhett sighs out. Where's Mary? Jax then shouts, the crowd silencing for a moment as they listen into the tent. Listen, man, the high-level overview is that she's gone. Gone? Jax groans, disbelieving the simplistic answer. Yeah, Rhett coughs, and not just her. <coughs> Dozens of others were killed and taken by the PPA. The encampment is divided because of everything you... Ren and Connor have done here. He's seen it a hundred times within the PPA and has read about it countless more. Division creates confusion, and confusion primes the pump for a power vacuum. And it's here where opportunists graciously show their faces. If there is one thing Rhett is willing to bet whatever life he has left on, it's that Kai will try something before this all comes to an end. Kill! 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 The crowd starts back up. Where is she? Jax then yells. She can't be dead, he thinks to himself. That's not how. It's, it's not supposed to be like this. Where is she? Buddy, you need to calm down or the dogs are going to. Where is she? Where is she? Where is she? Repeatedly shouting the question. Each time Jax's voice rises, signaling to the monitor at his bedside of the rise in vital measurements. Jax attempts to stand, but is stopped by seven leather belts binding him from his feet to his chest. Reaching with his newly equipped arm, Jax tears through the first like wrapping paper before reaching for the second, where it too tears with ease. Taking a hold of the third strap, Jax is stopped as six raiders rush inside, pinning him back down on the table. I tried telling you, Rhett coolly states. Hold him! One raider commands as another attempts to restrap one of the leather belts. The moment he lets go to readjust, though, Jax's arm thrashes forward, knocking the raider unconscious. Get a tranquilizer! Another shouts, desperately trying to compete with Jax's strength. From across the tent, a medic rushes to a set of cabinets, pulling out a small bottle and needle before running back over. While four others each pin a limb, the doctor hastily measures out a dose of the sedative before plunging the syringe into Jax's thigh. The violent writhing doesn't stop, however, and as Jax lurches forward, his mechanical arm knocks another to the other side of the tent where he stumbles and crashes into the medical supplies. The doctor, moving to prepare another dose, stops as he watches Jax begin to slur his words, his swings and kicks immediately becoming uncoordinated. Grab him before he falls, the doctor shouts out. Catching him, the three remaining raiders move Jax back over to the bed where they strap him down. Where, where's Mary? Jax mumbles, the question further softened as the image of her smile and the kiss they shared moves to the forefront of his memory. Your body needs rest, the doctor says, injecting one last dose into Jax's leg as he does. As sleep begins to overtake him, 
The serenity of their intimate moment is interrupted. Moving her lips away, Mary looks down at his arm, where the memory is swiftly erased by a white, blinding, explosive heat. Do you remember the For the first time, Rhett's raspy voice asks. Yeah, we got in so much trouble, Ren chuckles. Jax's eyes open, but as they do, he keeps them as still as he possibly can. The sedative left a lethargic wave as it passed through his system, and to avoid a spinning scene, Jax a mocking impression of what Jax thinks to be Caspian. I told you not to go in the warehouse, didn't I? Where was Connor again? Ren asks as she scours her memory. Rhett thinks on it for a moment. I don't know. There's no way he left with them, did he? Before any of them can figure it out, though, Connor... He was reading in his room. Ren snaps her fingers as if remembering on her own. Kneeling next to his sister, Connor looks from Rhett to Ren, steadily answering her concern. Gently, Ren places her hand on Rhett's and with more tears than intended asks, <laughs> How could I forget? Rhett replies and is thrown into a coughing fit as he remembers the terrific memory, weakly swinging his arms in his reenactment of the fight. Connor had him pinned in two Whatever, Rhett shrugs. Once you had his face in the ground, he began to cry, I swear. the fight. I thought Cass was gonna win. <laughs> Your vote of confidence goes a long way, Connor scoffs. What were you guys even fighting? Silence fills the room, killing all laughter on the spot, the gravity of the current situation spilling into the happy void. Nothing like good old family memories to sober us up, Rhett remarks. Not being one for emotionally cramped settings, Connor stands. I'll be back. Keep an eye on his vitals, he says, patting Brett on the shin and kissing the top of Ren's head. Ren's hand. Caspian wouldn't have dared attack Rhett if he had been. He's just misunderstood, Rhett quietly says. Who? Caspian? How can you say that? After what he did to you? After he took Anne? He's my brother. And what is Connor? If Caspian's your brother, what does that make me? Rhett chuckles at the silly question. <laughs> Makes you my sister. Just because he's evil, Rhett interrupts. How can you not see that? When your flesh and blood are at war with each other, you not suffer with both causes. Can't there be a balance? Where Caspian is coming from, he empathizes with the man, which has only allowed him to see the more than a power struggle between extreme ends, the pendulum swinging from one radical to another. This isn't fair, Ren whispers. Life isn't fair, Rhett counters, his hand touching her soft cheek before lifting her chin. Ren? She can't. She won't open her eyes. As much as she wants to believe he'll pull through, she's seen people die from lesser injuries. Out of fear of regret, though, she moves her gaze to his. Ren, you can't trust This power shift is nothing new to human nature. 
They want exactly what the Nine wants. Not all of them, she softly whispers. No, but they are few and far between. This is something Ren has been willfully blind to, but feared nonetheless. Radicalism is humanity's endless loop of self-correction, and it doesn't matter if some side with Jax and the rest of them. More and more of the majority are becoming sympathetic to the duality of Kai's Unless, of course, there's a catalyst from within. Get and back, Rhett urges, wiping her tears away. Whether you fight with the raiders or not, get that little girl back. Make something right in this world. Red not. Her head fall to her loving brother's chest, the sound of his beating heart and labored breath echoing in her ears. Ren? She hears Rhett but continues to wallow, her growing cries muffled in the blanket. Ren, I need you to focus. They have a plan. Who? Ren asks. Everyone, he says. Everyone has an agenda. The Nine, the Raiders... Everyone wants to control someone. What the hell am I supposed to do with that, Rhett? Ren asks, flustered by his ambiguity. You remember the lessons we had in genetic engineering and modification? Of course. Mother and father seem to have an abnormal fascination with the subject. That's because they created a program. <laughs> a, a program that will shape the world as we know it, he says, looking to the shadows of the countless protesting raiders outside. Everyone wants their peace. How will the world change? A heavy, raspy sigh, the last one Rhett will yield, is released. The super soldier myth. Sounds stupid, but it's real. They've created an army. Each soldier, as strong, if not stronger than you, me, and Caspian. We were just tests. I don't understand. Why the army? Rhett pulls his sister towards him and lays his head down on top of hers, noticing as he does that across the way, Jax is awake and attentive. Without moving or shifting his weight in acknowledgement, Rhett just continues to stare at him dead in the eyes, making sure he understands what's at stake. With a reassuring nod from Jax, Rhett gives his last gesture, a simple wink of gratitude. Ren, save Anne. Stop being a pawn for the Nine, for the Raiders or anyone. Rhett's eyes shut, and without warning, the machine at his bedside beeps. The first beep goes unnoticed, but as they continue, they jolt Ren to her senses. Ren, she cries, her voice filled with concern. The beeps grow louder and more rapid, and as they do, Ren slowly rests his head back on his bed. Don't do this, Ren, Ren pleads, but the beeps mercilessly continue to grow faster and louder. She searches for something, anything to keep him with her. Remember, remember that time when, she begins, unable to finish the thought, her words mixing with her growing sense of dread. I'll get Anne back. The beeps are at an uncomfortably intense pace, matching each pattering tear that drips from off Ren's cheek, until finally, they abruptly merge into one continuous tone. Ret! Ren shakes her brother. Ret! She continues to shake him, but of course there's no response. And once she finally accepts his passing, she buries her head back into his chest to find what little comfort she can in his diminishing warmth. Before she can fully come to terms with losing her other half, a dozen raiders from outside rush in, yanking her from Ret's body hitting one in the crotch with a sharp elbow, 
Ren then kicks the knee of another backwards as she fights to stay by her brother's side. With seven more entering the tent, her combative spirit is smothered as a rag is shoved into her face, putting her to sleep in a matter of seconds. Ren! Jack shoots up from his bed, tearing through the straps holding him down as he charges their attackers. Utilizing the newly equipped metal arm, Jack sends one flying ten feet backwards and out the entrance of the tent. It takes four men to wrangle down his one mechanical arm and another three for the rest of his body. But once under enough control, the same rag that rendered Ren unconscious muffles Jax's shouts of protestation until he too becomes limp and useless. As the raiders catch their breath and begin tending to those wounded in the brief encounter, in walks Kai, casually observing the scene before him. Burn the dead one's buddy. Take the other two out to the clearing with Kana. Little girl, the old lady asks, praying that the child is not dead this time. There's been enough death these past few hours to last a lifetime. Anne. Finally, Anne hears the old lady's petitioning pleas as she's jarred awake. With her eyes still focusing, the only stark detail is the bleak, grim atmosphere of her iron surroundings. Packed in a single metal room, dozens of people captured from the encampment cluster together as far away as they can from the massive, locked entryway on the other end. Shoved in a far corner with an elderly woman, Anne gets to her feet as their prison doors are heaved open, permitting three beastly PPA officers to walk in. With guns aimed, trained to kill anyone daring enough to move, the one who appears to be in charge shouts, All of you get on your feet! Conditioned by death and pain, the surviving raiders jump up, their hands behind their heads. Scoping her surroundings, Anne can't help but let out a soft chuckle. These soldiers act like they're in front of armed and hostile savages. There's not a single man... Anne can only assume they've been killed, and as for the women and children, it's not like any of them can usurp the Nine all by themselves. You think this is funny? The one in charge asks. A little surprised he noticed her snickering, Anne doesn't let it show as she faces the direct question. No, sir! She says, naturally mocking the man by comically erecting her body and standing at the position of military attention. Then why do you have a stupid smile on your face? And without waiting for Anne to respond, the PPA officer gives Anne a fierce backhand, knocking her back three feet instantly wiping her smirk away. Bouncing off the far wall, Anne stumbles right back into the PPA officer's vicinity. Huh? He shouts, the one-worded retort echoing in the tiny concrete iron room, everybody falling silent as it does. Didn't have a chance to answer you, sir! Anne simply says, You smacked me before I could! A smart ass, the man mumbles, smacking Anne a second time across the face. Looking the frail little girl up and down, he then whispers something to Anne that only she can hear. You're almost old enough, you know. Anne gags at the grotesque remark. Being intimidated is the furthest thing from her thought process. She could thank Mary for her indifferent outlook on death, she being the tough cookie that she is. But it wasn't until finding the raiders that Anne began applying this unwavering courage. If she's going to die, she's going to die, and there's nothing she can do about it. Everybody dies, every regime falls, and it'll only be a matter of time before the Nine and the government must face their own inevitable end. This is the hope and the liberating perspective some of the raiders gave her, and she'll be damned if she gives that up because of some guy who measures the size of his dick by how hard he hits a child. You have no idea what I could do to you, the officer says. You really think I care? Whatever commotion was left in the room, it truly falls silent upon hearing Anne's bold David and Goliath statement. What did you say? You heard me, you prick, she says, stating each word with bold emphasis. For a moment, the PPA officer is speechless, resorting to his sole pathological response, delivering another heavy backhand that again sends Anne backwards. Do you even know why you're here? The officer chuckles out, his rage masked by a delirious tone. He waits for a moment, 
letting the rhetorical question set in, Anne's heavy breathing the only audible human sound. Why are you here? He then asks, gripping Anne's hair and standing her on her feet. For pleasure, she grimaces, and although her smile is puffy and bleeding, it's managed to find its way back onto her face. Your lab rats, the officer smirks. Your tests, and after every one of you are dead, we can hand your bodies over to your families and friends in separate bags. There will be a bag for your arms, one for your legs, and I'll personally deliver the ones your heads are in. Then, dropping Anne to her knees, the officer grabs the young woman just next to her before motioning to his two other minions to do the same. After each has picked out a sufficient female, the three brutes leave, locking the door behind them. Yeah, right, Anne mumbles. If they are going to cut them into little pieces, they would have done it by now. The old lady Anne has vaguely gotten to know as Mihi approaches and examines the fresh cuts and bruises. You're a different one, Mihi says, helping Anne to her feet. Is that a good or bad thing? Anne smiles. Only time will tell, young one. Mihi shrugs and with surprising strength carries her over to a corner of other women. How old are you? Anne asks Mihi. Old enough to have seen children and grandchildren grow up and die. I'm sorry, Anne blushes, having not expected such an abrasive response. Don't be. They all died fighting the good fight. And for that, I'm proud. I wish I could say the same. Wish you could say the same about who? No one, Anne quietly says, her thoughts going back to Mary in the tent. Bruised and bleeding, worse than Anne's current condition, the image forever seared in her young mind. Rancid water, molding food, no fingernails, cuts and burns in unimaginable places. And of all the people, it was him. Jackie did that to her sister. Mihi, seeing an all-too-familiar look sagging on Anne's young face, takes the little girl's chin in her hand. War does things to people. It changes them. It's changed some of us raiders. And that makes it okay? Of course not. It doesn't mean you can't still love them. Although their works may be dark, it doesn't mean their hearts aren't yearning to be in the light. Good intentions, Anne scoffs. She would very much like to disagree, but her exhaustion wins the debate. Maybe you're right. I know I am, Mihi chuckles, gently touching Anne's face. I used to be one of them. And then before Anne can respond or inquire any further, Mihi raises her head to the crowd of women and children. Let us pray. Not a single protest is heard because in times like these, there is nothing else one can do. Those who are able kneel, and those who aren't all reverently bow their heads where they lay. O oh God, our loving God in heaven, to whom we pray. Denver International Airport December 25th, 2037. Nothing is more terrifying than to have a missing child amidst violent chaos. Finishing his business, the little boy flushes the urinal. Squeamish from the water splashing out on his hands, Kai stumbles backwards and bumps into an older gentleman, scuffing the shiniest shoes he's seen outside of his cousin's Air Jordans. You little prick, the man states. I just got these polished. Who cares if it was just a child? All he needed was to take a piss before the meetup, and apparently that was a mistake. Sorry. Kai mumbles, trying to move past the man. Being broken from the inner city, Kai hasn't had very many opportunities to travel, and on the few occasions he has, it's never been by plane. So, to say that he isn't entirely aware of the social etiquette in a situation like this is an understatement. Is your sorry going to keep me from looking like a piece of shit in front of a future client? Hey! From around the corner, Kai's dad pokes his head out from behind the wall and dividing the sinks and toilets. You mind watching your language? The businessman, first looking to Kai and then back to his father, just gives a miffed click of the tongue. He's already late. Without an apology or demanding one himself, he simply picks up his carry-on and walks out. Freaking disgusting, 
Dad says, waving his hands underneath the paper towel dispenser. Whitey didn't even wash his hands. Sorry, Dad, Kai then says to his father, the guilt of the whole encounter weighing on him. You just gotta watch where they're going. Not saying the pale face was in the right, but you just gotta pay attention. Yeah, Kai says, stepping up to the kid's sink. I'll be outside, his dad says, throwing away the used, moist paper towel. He doesn't have much, but at least he has two parents, Kai thinks as he watches his dad leave. Most, if not all of his friends, have just their mom, and most, if not all, of their older siblings have issues with law enforcement and gang violence. Peers is probably a better word. The only time he's allowed to associate with them is at school. Once he gets into football and basketball, Kai knows he'll be able to see them more and maybe become their friends. But even then, he's doubtful. With the strict academic regimen his parents have him on, Kai has little confidence that he'll be able to, quote, hang out with the boys. But if he's being honest, he's okay with that. Kai's okay if it's just him and his mom and dad. He's still got his cousins that he sees at least once a month, if not more, and with what he wants to do when he grows up, Kai's grateful that he has parents who care about his dreams as much as he does. Owning a car repair and detailing shop, his parents work extremely hard and make sure that he has the same work ethic in school. His peers, well, they can't say the same. Even before Plan B, riots were commonplace where he lives. As much as his parents tried to shield him from the woes and biases of the world, they themselves are imperfect, and the internet and social platforms can infect anyone. Yes, Kai's parents make sure to monitor his internet activity, but again, his peers' parents don't have the same standards and expectations, and the race riots are all they talk about these days. That and porn, but Kai's more interested in the riots, knowing for a fact that his dad would murder him if he ever found out he was looking at girls the way his peers do. He's also had a natural interest in politics despite his age. While everyone at school talks about the new cool TV or phone their brother got from looting, Kai notices the dynamics of the different groups involved, white people in particular. Not only do they try to tell his parents how to vote, where to vote, how to run their business, and ultimately what to think, they do so with absolutely no context about their situation. He's heard the term Uncle Tom on more than one occasion, and again, as young as Kai is, his talent for discernment of what the whitey wants is eerily accurate. The Democrat, as his dad would say before the United States disappeared, is one that wants to suppress the black community. They always have. Infamously known for implementing poll taxes, supporting the KKK, and creating a welfare system, that's old news. But the ways they backhandedly offer their help with continued and renewed socialistic policies and reparation programs, it's as if the Dems want them to want the government's money. Money is a form of ownership, after all. Kai is still sorting through the intricacies of the cultural situation, but from what he's heard his parents talk about, and from his own observations within his community, White liberals seem to treat black people like they're stupid and ignorant, rather than expecting them to pull their own weight. That's a gross generalization, but as someone who comes from a family that owns their own business, he identifies with the latter point of view. Yes, he is convinced that no one party is the answer to all his people's problems, but the progressive seems to be the cause of them, the white ones in particular. What does a kid like him know, though? Like his dad, Kai waves his hand underneath the towel dispenser. When nothing happens, he jumps to see if the height will trigger the sensor and as he lands, the earth beneath him quakes in a powerful rumble. Kai keeps his balance, but when he hears the screams and shouts of terror outside, he begins to panic. Mom! He calls out. Dad! He then screams, slipping and exiting the bathroom as fast as his little legs will allow. Continuing to shout, Kai's crying pleas of confusion are drowned out by the sheer uproar the airport is in. With three more shattering explosions, the madness only grows, adding to his disorientation, and before he can hope to find his mom or dad, a fourth blast shakes through the terminal followed by a fifth, sixth, seventh, and then eighth. Area 38, 20 years later.
In position, Kai whispers into the microphone. How long do you want me to hold? Until we need you, the voice on the other end states. Obviously, I'm asking when the hell that will be, Kai demands, but there's no reply. In fact, there's a brief mic pop, which tells Kai that his team just cut off communication with him. Asshole. Kai wants in on the action, but for some reason, everyone else has other plans. Sitting on the outskirts of the convoy's route and in the shadows of the tree line, Kai can't help but be a little annoyed Dan didn't have him spearhead the operation. With a simple divide-and-conquer approach, it's going to be an easy operation. Let alone, if their intel is half-correct, they'll have one of the stone children in custody by the end of the night, something that has the potential of changing the raiders' fate in the ongoing fight. He's not a kid anymore. Why can't Dan see that? Kai tries and tries to be grateful for what the father figure has done for him over the years, but sometimes he just can't see deeper than Dan's white skin. His wife, Celeste, the only person that's grounding him at the moment, keeps telling him to let it go. She keeps telling him to be patient. Dan isn't a bad man, but, if Kai's being honest, he hasn't trusted anyone in a long time, especially those that look like his surrogate father. Glancing at the bracelet and the dangling charms his wife made him, Kai refocuses on the mission on getting himself and the team back home safely. It's only a couple of minutes of radio silence before the convoy rounds the bend at the point of the mountain. About five kilometers out, Kai picks up his rifle and aims down the scope of the lead vehicle, counting back seven to the rear. A stunted convoy, Kai thinks. Nothing heavily armed, which will make their approach that much faster, and if the PPA soldiers are following SOP, the target should be in the second or third vehicle. Shifting his aim to the team, Kai spots them patiently waiting strategically dispersed on both sides of the road, three on the north and two on the south. As Kai moves his aim back and forth from the convoy to the team, he visualizes the plan, trying to find any sort of last-minute weaknesses within it. Detonating the charge on the fourth vehicle, Sergeant Brecken cuts the PPA convoy in half, making them an easier force to handle. The second and third charges then ignite on the lead and rear vehicles, blockading the entire line on the choke point, isolating the second and third trucks. At only 1,100 meters now, with his long rifle, Kai takes out the heavy gunners on vehicles 5, 6, and 7. It wasn't in the brief, but rarely are these things verbatim. As he watches Brecken and his group secure the two lead vehicles from the north, from the south, Bravo team cleans up the remaining PPA soldiers in the rear before the operation takes a drastic and unprecedented turn. In the third vehicle, out pops the two stone boys, first Caspian, and then the younger Rhett. Before Kai can get a bead on them, Caspian kills Brecken's second-in-command before Rhett takes out the other raider from the north. Firing off a chain of suppressive fire, Brecken links up with the remaining two raiders, where they quickly coordinate before attempting to flank Caspian or Rhett. The two stones must have a tactical suspicion about Kai's sniper position because instinctively, they move behind one of the burning vehicles that acts as both cover and concealment. Damn it to hell, Kai swears before abandoning his position and sprinting to the fight. Brecken, do you read? Do not advance on the target! I do not have eyes on. Say again. Do not advance. As expected, Kai's advice is only met with radio silence. Moron probably never turned his radio back on after he cut off the transmission. Regardless, Kai continues his move on the battle, tactically checking in on Brecken's team from what cover he can find along the way. When Kai is 200 meters out, gunshots begin to re-emerge as the raiders then advance on Caspian and Red. Kai is still unable to see the two stones, but watches as both of Brecken's remaining men are shot in the head. Throwing out a smoke grenade, Brecken screens his flank on what Kai believes to be Caspian Red's position. Brecken then quickly falls out of Kai's sight before a long silence fills the battlefield. Figuring the stones are fixated on Brecken's move, Kai begins to make his way forward, cautiously closing the 200-meter distance between him and the burning vehicles. With nothing to fix his sights on, Kai keeps his gun trained on Caspian and Red's last known position, 
As he gets closer, Kai hears the roaring, crackling fires before a short three-round burst shatters the stillness in the air. Dropping to a knee, Kai waits for a second three-round burst, but doesn't hear one. Shit, he whispers, knowing that Brecken was just killed, leaving him the lone raider on the field of battle with two children of the nine. Being way too close to engage with the stones, Kai has no choice but to retreat. With two options at his disposal, speed or silence, Kai opts for the former. He may not completely disappear unnoticed, but Kai's fast and can at least be out of effective firing range before they spot his retreat. Drawing two smoke grenades and frag, Kai pops the smoke 10 meters in front of him before throwing the frag up and over the fiery vehicle. Just as the smoke begins to hiss out and up, the explosion from his frag grenade bursts, adding to the confusion of his retreat. With the failed ambush, 75 meters behind him, Kai begins hearing gunshots that are followed by whistles past his head and the zip of ricocheting bullets. Tossing a second and third smoke grenade down behind him, Kai continues to sprint back to the tree line as he increases the distance by another 100 meters. With the sounds of shots ceasing, Kai stumbles into the foothills before looking back. In the distance and behind the heat of the burning trucks, Kai sees both Caspian and Rhett looking in his direction. They don't advance, knowing he now has the upper hand, but rather bunker back down. For a split second, Kai thinks to make one final attack, but the thought is quickly cut off at the sound of an approaching aircraft. Knowing that he has only a few minutes before the owl has a potential thermal reading, Kai starts up his mountain motorcycle and hauls ass out of the area, cursing God that the stones will live to fight another day. Raider Encampment, present day. Justice! That is why we are here! Kai yells out, the multitude erupting in a roar of cheers. As the instigator of the rage, Kai looks to the white traders, his imagination reveling in the thoughts of every one of their deaths. While it's more than easy to picture each of their heads on a pole, mouths agape and eyes rolled into their skulls, he relishes in doing things right and making that vision a reality. Son, what are you doing? Dan shouts out, seeing the bastardized trial before him. He sensed division within the encampment, but never did he think that it would escalate to this mob justice. Dan moves to stop the abomination before him, gesturing for other surrounding raiders to help, but the former leader is blatantly ignored. After all he's done, in blind, emotional outrage, they are willing to dismantle what they've built together. What you lack the spine to do, Kai mumbles, in a pathetic attempt to avoid Dan's gaze. Rather than taking them to trial, risking their acquittal, Kai took matters into his own hands. It's the only way he can finish what he's always wanted to start. Does anyone wish to state their testimony before the gathering vote? The gathering? Ren whispers, on her knees, shaking her head at the irony. Rhett was right. They are the very thing they deplore. Kai! Dan shouts back out as he forces his way through the crowd. Stop this madness! Once to the front, Dan approaches Kai in a demand for reason, but before he can say anything more, Kai throws a wild punch, connecting with the side of Dan's head. As the man drops to his knees in utter shock, the mumbling crowd is momentarily silenced before scattered chuckles begin to move throughout the horde. Some even have the audacity to threateningly approach the downed former leader, but as Connor stands up and steps next to Dan, their advance is immediately halted. Death or exile, Kai blares out, roaring laughter growing from the crowd and assenting his declaration. Now again, is there anyone willing to state a testimony? No one steps forward, and for a long moment, Jax, Connor, Wren, and now Dan await the next fixed condemnation. Dan's heart breaks as he watches Kai be the catalyst for the seeping corruption that is now within the tribe. He brought that boy and every one of these individuals together in hopes of getting away from the crony collectivism that brought down the United States in the first place. Now it seems that only emotion is the primary ruling force at play. However, 
in an act that reignites hope, Kai's smug crowing is cut off by a single elderly woman speaking up and raising her hand. I, I wish to state a testimony. Emotions begin to boil as she steps forward, everyone knowing what her intentions are. Allowing order to overrule his cynicism, Kai knows that there is nothing this woman can do to change the predetermined fate, and as a grin creeps across his face, the populist judicial process he's manufactured plays the role it's been designed to. Pure democracy is a beautiful thing in moments like these, and as murmurs turn into shouts, not a single person allows room for her to speak. The woman, however, stands resolute in her conviction, barely resting on the cane by her side, and once in front of the mobbed assembly, she turns without waiting for silence. These enraged protestations will be their demise. Enough blood has been spilt in this country, on our land, the woman shouts out, her combative tone an unsettling one to the most hostile raider present. While some reach for her shoulder, their hands being swiftly smacked away by her cane, others take exception to her words with vitriol and fiery rhetoric. Race traitor! One shouts out. Those white filthy pigs deserve to die. They ruined our land. They brought the PPA here to kill us. No, the woman shouts back, stabbing her cane in the air at the man. No, Dajun. Our land, this land has been polluted by us. Not these four. Look at you, wanting death over mercy. Your mother would be ashamed of you. And you, Kai, condemning your own father? The commotion dies down, all eyes waiting for him to meet the accusation. The white man is not my father, Kai mutters. He raised you, did he not? The people did. His shout of contempt slowly stirs the masses back into outrage. The white man is nobody's father. Wrong again, my boy. He found you orphaned and took you in when you had no one else. My real father was killed by the same government that these four brought into our encampment. And Celeste? She calmly asks, looking to the charmed bracelet around Kai's wrist. What would she think? She's dead, Kai grits out, the weight of the decorated ornament heavy on his wrist. You don't know that, she continues, her resolve unwavering. Dan took care of you. Dan raised you. He raised her and everyone here that condemns him. And what of the other three? Kai snaps stepping toe-to-toe -to -toe with the woman. Let's say you're right about Dan. Do they deserve my trust as well? Yes, she defiantly states. Your father trusts them, and so should you. Kai smirks. And what if Kip right? He turns to the crowd. Do you remember what he was sworn to bring us? A box! Hundreds shout out. The box! And what was in this box? Mumbling silence follows the question. Nobody says anything because nobody ever really knew what the box contained. Kip was killed, failing to bring them back what their leader swore would change the world, none of them having the chance to see the coveted crimson trinket. Rumors say it's inside the encampment, that Jax is the one who actually has it. But box or no box, it is of little importance because its alleged contents are nothing more than a fairy tale, a fantasy Dan has used to concoct false hope. For years they chased and protected these red chests to no avail and to think that this one was supposed to be different. This box was to be the saving grace of the raiders. These, quote, records that Dan has been obsessed with have been nothing more than a bloody, wild goose chase, unnecessarily shedding the blood of his people and distracting them from their true purpose. It is time for the raiders to rise and take what is owed to them. All are dead. They are all dead because of them. He hid the box from us, Kai yells, pointing out to the surrounding crowd before moving his finger first to Dan, then over to Jack's. He hid the very item Dan said would turn this war around. And what has it done? We are worse off than ever. All because of these four white liars. 
The woman looks on Kai with saddened eyes, knowing that he knows of the truth, but refuses to see it based solely on skin surface prejudices. He can justify it all away with rhetoric that appeals to an enraged mob, but she knows it is nothing more than white and black in Kai's eyes. We agreed to let them in, the woman states. It was our choice that Dan offered to us, and we took it. We wanted to fight with them because deep down we knew something had to change if we were to start winning. We weren't afraid then, so why are we now? Why are you letting Kai impose his will on you? Kai grits his teeth. As the crowd has progressively gotten quieter, the stark reality that he is losing control of the storm takes hold of him. Jax, Connor, Ren, and Dan. They need to die. They need to be made into examples that different is unwanted. That it is unacceptable because different will not give the Raiders power over the Nine. Fire can only be fought with a stronger fire. If he's going to defeat Caspian, he too must do the unthinkable. My will. Dan's will. Kai intones, his hand gripping his holstered sidearm. None of that matters anymore. What matters is justice. With no more time to waste on trivial debate and semantics, the opposition must be eliminated. Kai draws his weapon, pointing it at the woman's head, Kai pulls the trigger without hesitation, and before her body hits the earth, the crowd is silenced as he shifts his aim to the next closest target. You made me do this, Kai spits out, pressing the metal barrel of the gun to Dan's head as his eyes well up with rage. I wish you never would have saved me. I would have been better off dead all those years ago. Dan closes his eyes, accepting death. Connor, on the other hand, is anything but compliant as his hand swiftly raises, sweeping the gun up to the sky just as the bullet exits the gun. Run! He shouts out over to the other three. Get an owl and get out! But before he can finish, Kai has recovered and hits the side of Connor's head with the closed fist. Although dazed, Connor keeps his hold of the firearm, and in their struggle, the gun is pointed from the sky to the crowd where another round is fired, striking the stomach of a young woman. Most in the crowd erupt in panic while others join the fight and draw their own weapons. Move! Now! Ren shouts, pushing Dan aside. A bullet strikes the dirt where he knelt. But as she stands, Ren finds herself staring down the barrel of a rifle. To her surprise, Jax rushes forward and bends his metal arm up and in front of Ren's face, where the fired round ricochets off its surface. Having seen the origin of the shot, Connor elbows the underbelly of Kai's chin before yanking the gun from his grip. Aiming, he shoots the rifleman and three others that have their guns drawn, neutralizing all immediate threats. But now, the massive crowd is scattered into absolute chaos, and taking advantage of the crisis at hand, Connor kicks Kai backwards, where he is trampled by a handful of frantic people rushing to safety. Fighting to his feet, Kai reaches for one of the downed rifles, gripping it and chambering a fresh round. He takes aim and shoots into the rushing crowd, striking a man in his thigh, only to see that the four white traders have disappeared. 